This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Let me start by saying uh, Merry Christmas to everybody, including people who don't necessarily celebrate it, because even the secular version of Christmas is pretty awesome. I've always loved Christmas time and I always will. I'm not going to get all super sappy, you know, Christmas message, love everybody kind of thing. One of the things we've kind of learned is that a lot of people go dark, by which I mean they don't turn evil or cruel or malevolent. Uh, I mean that they stop podcasting or writing during the holiday season. And since I have mean method and opportunity or whatever, uh, we still do the solos if I'm not like, you know, on some great vacation or something, uh, because there's a, there's a dearth of content out there. And so some of our most downloaded episodes of the remnant have been when basically nobody else was podcasting. So I'm podcasting for all of the moms and dads and whoever else and students who are running around last minute trying to get presents the day before Christmas or whatever, or are doing various chores and they need something to listen to that's not for the whole family. I do have one idea for some, for some heartfelt stuff, but it's not like I'm going to be Bill Murray at the end of Scrooge. Where to begin? Oh, I'll begin with a, a mea culpa, which I already put in the comments. I, I love talking to Fred Kagan. Fred Kagan is is brilliant and incredibly knowledgeable and has an incredibly disciplined brain, far more disciplined than, than mine. I mean, look, cows. Uh, no, uh, far more disciplined than mine uh, because I fear much trouble in the fuselage Frederick. He basically teed up the most obvious question possible for me, and I didn't follow through on it, which was he kept saying several times, that he does not support or agree with the way Israel is conducting the war against Hamas, implying that there's a better way. And I never asked him, okay, what would you do? And I can give you all sorts of excuses. Like I kind of thought he was setting himself up to just assert what his views were, and he just never did. Also, I wanted to get to the other things, but anyway, I just blew it. I mean, I, I don't pride myself on being some sort of great interviewer. 
I don't really consider the remnant to be an interview podcast. It's it's a conversation. Right. And sometimes in conversations, you plan on circling back to something and then you never do. But it was just such a given that he supports Israel, given that he's don't get me started. But, you know, he's considered a intellectual lodestar of sort of what people call neoconservatism, um, which, again, I think most people who do that, they've either surrendered to the way we talk about neoconservatism or they don't know what neoconservatism was. Regardless, he's considered, you know, one of the smartest hawks there is out there and I should have pressed him on it. I should have asked and it just bothered me a lot that I didn't because I want to know the answer. So I'll probably email him, see if I can either get him back on or just get him to answer the question in print and I'll tell you guys what it was. Or maybe I can see if I can get him to write it for the dispatch. That would be a good idea. Okay, so uh, beyond that, let's start with the Colorado decision. I agree with most of the specific arguments for this 14th Amendment theory, like I like when you if you listen to the Will Bode episode of advisory opinions and as you listen to them go through it or if you listen to the, the latest episode of advisory opinions, which goes through a lot of this, I'm I, I, I'm not as confident or as convinced um, or satisfied as as David French is. But I generally think on each of the specific objections, the team supporting the majority in the Colorado case has the better argument. But as as Sarah sort of, you know, pointed out, she says one of the problems you get in law often is let's say you have to hit five requirements, um, you know, on some sort of test um, for making a ruling one way over another way. And you, you satisfy all five, but sometimes, but each one is kind of a judgment call it's like 5149, 55-45. They're not clear. The people who disagree on each one of the elements have good cases that you can you can acknowledge. And so when you add up all of the, you know, the the arguments on each element, the total is is just really underwhelming, right? It's almost it's almost like a failing grade because it's only like a little bit over 50% satisfied. And I think that's sort of the that's that's one of the one of the problems with all of this is that it's just not cut and dried. It's not obvious. It's not clear. Yuval goes on. Yuval Levin goes on at considerable length. Sadly for National Review and not for the Dispatch on some of this. I generally agree with him. I will get to that in a second. But um, I'm persuaded by the 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 specific up close arguments that Will Bode and those guys make about all this to one extent or another, sometimes just barely, sometimes like it kind of just depends who gets the last word in on the argument kind of thing. But all in all, I think it's a credible thing. I think it's intellectually consistent. I think it's understandable. And I actually think a lot of the the motives for it are justifiable, which I got to talk about in a second too. So whenever I hear people on the Left or right, and I hear a lot of them, right? It's all over MSNBC, it's all over Fox, it's all over Twitter. Whenever I hear people taking the 100% position on either side, that this is an absolutely ludicrous, preposterous, ridiculous argument with no merit whatsoever, it's so, it's, and because it's so transparently stupid, uh, you can see the naked political motivation behind all of it, and it's illegitimate, and it's anti-democratic. It is anti-democratic, but big whoop. 
I just find that that, that sort of the Mark Levin, Hugh Hewitt, you know, that crowd, I just think that they're revealing their partisan motivations by talking about how the other side only has partisan motivations. Similarly, the people who say this is 100% slam dunk, it's so obvious, they nailed it. There's really no rebuttal possible to the Colorado majority. I think they're kind of nuts too. I don't necessarily think it's, with them, it's not necessarily partisanship as it is anti-Trumpism, but these things are very difficult to distinguish, right? I think it's it's a really deep and rich and marbled gray on, on the actual merits of these arguments one way or the other. And again, I kind of lean on the pro side uh, of this on the narrow merits. But on the big picture, I'm pretty heavily on the anti side for reasons that I wrote about, you know, I don't know, when this first came up, you know, what was it, late spring, um, or many of the reasons that you've all alludes to over at NR. It's just not, it, the, 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 this just isn't how the system works. And it's one of these weird things where, like, this wouldn't be necessary if our institutions and voters and Republicans in particular had drawn the right conclusions from the Trump presidency and from January 6th and also from, you know, a bunch of other things like most of the indictments against him, uh, the 2022 midterms, Trump's character generally. I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable. It's amazing how many people freaked out when I'll just say, yeah, the majority of Republicans are just obviously wrong. Just obviously wrong. Not, 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 well, I got to hear both sides or whatever, or it's, it's, it's complicated. Majorities can be wrong. I've been writing for th- close to 30 years now about how pure democracy is, is, is no great shakes and how a, a position, a wrong position doesn't become right if you just add enough people to the pile who endorse it. One person who says two plus two is seven is wrong. A million people who say two plus two is seven are wrong. The only thing that that is different is that when one person says two plus two is seven, or a duck, or you know, or or or, or lemon meringue pie, whatever, that person's a crank, right? That's we can say that guy's an idiot. He's a fool. He's, there's something wrong with him. Maybe he's high. But if a million people believe it or say it, they're a constituency. And this has always been my problem or at the heart of my problem with populism is this idea that you've, if you just pluralize um, or multiply a wrong position, it becomes right because, you know, will of the people, Volksgemeinschaft, whatever. And I'm just not a crowds guy. I'm not a numbers guy about this kind of stuff. I defer to majorities, the will of the majority, when channeled properly through elections, because that's the system we have, and it's a good system to have for all sorts of reasons. The primary one not being because the will of the people is so glorious and oh and righteous. Vox Populo, you know, is Vox Vox Day. This idea that the voice of the people is the voice of God is one of the dumbest frigging ideas out there. It drives me crazy when Elon Musk quotes it, where basically does he holds a poll, he asks a question where he wants a specific answer. And then he says, so say like, should I let Alex, this is what he did recently. Should I uh, let Alex Jones, uh, just an absolute scumbag piece of crap back on Twitter. Should I lift his ban? I'll let the people decide. And he says, Vox Populi, Vox Day, right? The voice of the people is the voice of God. 
And he knows that the people are going to respond to him are going to answer the way he wants. And then he makes it sound like he is, you know, deferring to the masses and the will of the people. And he would happily go on the other way when he knows how it's going to go. But even if, even if that, that stuff isn't essentially rigged, it's still a stupid concept, right? I mean, like, I got to tell you, go read the Old Testament or the New Testament. All those prophets or Jesus, God is never saying, hey, by the way, Moses, when you go back down the, the mountain and with these tablets that I want you to give to everybody, if they've decided to go another way and maybe they're worshiping a golden calf and getting jiggy with each other and marrying their cousins or whatever they're doing down there while they're partying, while you're up here getting, you know, this important download from me. If it's a majority of them saying that they want to go with this golden calf thing, well, then that's I'm speaking through them and you should just go with them. Right. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, you know, when any of these prophets go to places and say, check yourselves before you wreck yourselves, it is in completely incompatible with this idea that the people are the voice of God. And it's just one of these incredibly dumb holdovers from 19th century. I mean, there's a law I've written about it before. There's a long history of the phrase. It's first coined essentially sarcastically to say, this is a ridiculous idea. And then it's picked up by like nationalists and including liberal nationalists that want to deify the masses as a counterpoint to monarchy or whatever. And um, whatever the history of it, it is like antithetical to the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's just logically idiotic. God does not take polls. Um, and if he was going to speak through the masses, he would stop picking individuals to tell the masses they're wrong. So if there wasn't, there wasn't this stupid cult of personality about Trump um, and this was still the Republican Party and conservative movement of even 10 years ago, this this 14th Amendment thing wouldn't be necessary because voters would just say, yeah, we're done with you. In fact, the Senate would have voted to bar him from office ever again. In fact, there are times over and over and over again where the obvious solution was just for vast numbers of voters to stop acting like an, an attack on Trump was an attack on them and stop rallying around Trump and saying, if you indict him, you're indicting me. And if, you, if they can go for, if they go after him, they can come after me. If they just gave up all of that Trump as sort of a Cheeto Jesus version of Joan of Arc and realized what, what a craptacular human being Donald Trump actually is and how bad he is for the country and for Republican Party, then this sort of effort would be ridiculous. Everyone would see this sort of ridiculous. Similarly, you know, if Donald Trump actually had a modicum of uh, patriotism or loyalty to the system that he swore an oath to uphold, um, he would have abided by the election. And don't get me started. He planned on if he, he planned on saying just like he does with golf. He planned on saying he was cheated if he lost. That was always the plan going in. There's a long record of it. And so he was not reacting to actual facts. I mean, sure, it's possible that since he wanted, you know, motivated reasoning is a hell of a drug, it's possible at times he believed his own BS, but it doesn't really matter because he planned on um, acting on the BS regardless beforehand. 
And so you can't give me this. No, he actually saw real facts because first of all, those facts have not been revealed um, because they don't exist. Anyway, if he had been just a remotely decent, patriotic, constitution revering person, none of this would be necessary because he would have accepted his loss. He would have showed up at Biden's inauguration and he would have complained and maybe he would have run again. And that would have been, you know, again, I wouldn't like it, but that would be fine. But he chose to go another way. And so one of the arguments that some of these guys make is that there are self-executing provisions of the Constitution. Yes and no, right? I mean, like if you're working within the constitutional framework, there are things that you don't need additional legislation. You don't need a cop. You know, you don't need the government to, to take action on. They exist Prior, right? You have your 14th Amendment rights, you have your, your Fifth Amendment rights, you have your First Amendment rights. They simply exist in the constitutional order without any further legislation required. But there's a difference between self-executing and self-enforcing. And this idea that, oh, well, it's obvious Trump's an insurrectionist, which again, I don't like the insurrectionist word in all of this conversation, never have. It's obvious Trump's an insurrectionist, so the, the system automatically defaults to him not being on the ballot. Doesn't work that way. Some secretary of state's got to make the decision. Someone's got to sue. Someone's, someone's got to, there has to be some forcing mechanism to make this a thing. If voters, particularly Republican voters, had their heads on straight, that wouldn't be necessary because he'd be at 1% in the polls or he wouldn't even be running or he would be barred from office to run. And so trying to use this very complicated sort of Rube Goldberg, no relation, um, me legal mechanism to compensate for what is really a collective action problem, a collective failure, both by Republican and conservative elites, and also to some extent progressive elites who constantly take their eye off the ball about what their real goals are and all of this stuff. But really the fundamental problem is the voters. The voters are just wrong. And that creates all sorts of problems that you're not going to get the Supreme Court to fix. You know, what is it in the Federalist Papers? If all men were angels, uh, there would be no need for government. Well, if all Republican voters had their heads on straight, there'd be no need for these kinds of Hail, legal Hail Mary moves. And I think, you know, if the Supreme Court tried to take him off the ballot or started a process of taking him off the ballot, it would create all sorts of cascading problems for the system, right? So I, I'm, that's generally where I am. I will say that even the people who I agree with, and this sort of gets, I wrote a G file on Wednesday about how I agree almost entirely with my friends at National Review, Charlie Cook, Rich Lowry, Dan McLaughlin, about the specific arguments about Trump becoming a dictator. But the, I really just, I recoil at the blaseness and the confidence that sometimes emanates off of that stuff as if it's sort of obvious that Trump couldn't be a dictator. Therefore, because he can't, it, it won't really be bad or damaging or something to be concerned about if he tried to be, right? We can get to that in a second, I guess. But even with Yuval and all that, the confidence that this is obviously the wrong way to go, I can't quite get to where a lot of my friends are on that. Again, I don't think it's the way to go. I'm making an educated guess I'm making a, you know, a, this is my considered judgment that this is a bad idea, even though I think the arguments are colorable. It's, Yuval makes a really good point that 
it's a good comparison to what some of Trump's lawyers tried to do after the election. They found this thing in the Electoral Vote Act or Electoral Count Act. And, ah, see, there's this loophole. And one of the things that people, which has not been covered enough, and we've tried to find someone good to write on this, is that um, a lot of the legal groundwork for what Trump tried to do on January 6th was laid down uh, by Larry Tribe and other progressives um, for Bush v. Gore. In fact, that Kenneth Cheeseborough, Chesborough guy, you know, used to be a big liberal Democrat, worked closely with Larry Tribe on that stuff. And so he was sort of up to speed on these arguments about what you could do with faithless electors and yada, yada, yada. And because he had become red-pilled, he brought it to bear on behalf of Trump. Um, regardless, my point is, is that if you were on a panel at the American Bar Association or the American Political Science Association, and you made this technical legal argument about how these loopholes and this constitutional silence and yada, 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 um, they actually do make a colorable case that the vice president has the ability to reject electors and send it back to the states and yada, 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 yada. I am sure that there is some smart version of that argument. I'm not sure I'd be persuaded by it, but like that smart people could be persuaded by, right? And that's the comparison that, that Yuval makes, which is just that, sure, there's an argument here, but take a step back, take a deep breath. This just, just isn't the way our system works. And I think that that response is correct. Um, that's what I agree with. I agree with it vis-a-vis, certainly vis-a-vis -vis January 6th, which I think was, which was about more than just bootstrapping a crazy, a, a, a tenuous and obscure legal argument. It was about a whole bunch of other things, which is why it was so bad. And also with this thing, right? I mean, it's, po again, it is possible that on, on every regard, the people on the Colorado majority side, the Will Bode side, have the better arguments. But if they were so persuasive and so obvious and all the facts fit them properly and fully, then we wouldn't have gotten to this place because the senators would have voted to uh, bar Trump from office. Voters would demand it or, or, or the House and Senate would have passed a resolution declaring Trump an insurrectionist, which would make this all a lot easier. I mean, there are a bunch of things that would have happened, but moreover, Trump wouldn't be threatening to seal the deal with the, with the nomination. You know, you can get away with an enormous amount of bad stuff if you have, you know, your whole party behind you or, or like large majorities of voters behind you, which is again, why I'm the, I, I care more about the liberal parts of the constitution than I do about the democratic part. And it's why I like the fact that the bill of rights puts a lot of these fundamental questions on a really high shelf that's really hard for voters to get to. They have to form one of those sort of like ant or zombie pyramids where they would have to climb crazy high to be able to reach, you know, to the First Amendment or anything like that. Because I, I, I don't want some questions put up for a vote. And I think it's fine. It, the, the, and that's one of the things that just drives me crazy about some of the, it's outrageous that, they're, that this is so anti-democratic. There are plenty of anti-democratic things in our system that we love and revere and that we depend upon. The question is, you know, I mean, like law itself is often very undemocratic because, you know, you can go to jail even if you're really popular with the kids today.
so anyway, it's not how the system works and there would be cascading problems if we, if, if we went this way. That said, just to close this point, it is by no means obvious to me that should Trump be elected president, a lot of people will look back at this moment and, you know, obviously the impeachment moment and, and other moments and say, man, what were we thinking? We really should have stopped this when we could have. I'm not saying that's, you know, what people will be thinking is they're being trucked off or trained off to camps or anything like that. But it is entirely possible that a Trump presidency would be so horrible um, and so embarrassing um, and so deleterious to national security that a lot of the people who are supremely confident in their positions now would look back and say, you know, we kind of blew it on that one, too. And that's the only way, only point I have about like my lack of supreme confidence in this position. I don't know that the events that will follow from a Supreme Court going 9-0 against the Colorado thing won't nonetheless have us look back and say, gosh, I wish they had gone a different way. And that might be hypocritical. It might be wrong because we won't know what happened. I mean, I do think the Supreme Court's not going to, the Colorado thing's not going to fly. I, I mentioned a little while ago about how the left often can't keep its eye on the ball on things. There are, uh, some liberal outlets are starting to cover this as a dumb partisan story. You know, will Trump appointed justices save Trump from Colorado, blah, 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 you know, and making it seem like there's a lot of sus suspense and partisan intrigue about this. And if, if the Supreme Court doesn't back Colorado courts play, that that will be proof that these these Republican judges, justices are all bought and paid for and partisan and all that kind of stuff. It's all garbage. They're not helping. Like, I, I, I promise you, Justice Roberts would love to be done with Donald Trump. <laughs> and the idea that he's going to save Donald Trump because he's a, a Republican appointee, it's just sort of cartoonish boob bait for the sort of barista socialist crowd that watches Rachel Maddow or whatever. Just don't buy into any of it. It's a terrible situation we're in. The court's being put in a terrible situation. The court's being put in a terrible situation by Donald Trump because he doesn't care about how the system is supposed to work. And it's being put in the situation by Republican and conservative elites who won't educate their own audiences. And it's being put in this terrible situation because the audiences themselves are wrong. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. If you 
haven't heard it. I, I wasn't on last week's episode of uh, the Dispatch podcast because I was off in Washington State for the Dispatch meetup. And so Sarah, Steve, Mike Warren, and um, John McCormick were on. And for those of you who don't know, John is a very passionate, very smart, very um, indefatigable reporter um, on pro-life issues. And he's pro-life. And he's very honest about it. He's very straightforward. He's, uh, it's, it's, he's not some hyper-partisan or anything like that, but that's just who he is. And that's, it's a beat he's covered for a very long time, and he's very informed on it. Sarah is pro-life with less of the, I think, I don't want to speak for her, but I, I think it's fair to say less of the, less doctrinaire and less of the ardor that you sometimes associate with more, with pro-life people. And they came down on different sides of this Texas case. And they had a really interesting exchange on, on the Dispatch podcast last week. And you should maybe go back and listen to it. It's, it's towards the second half. And I lean, this is another good example, I think, of how the actual facts and arguments are more persuasive than people want to believe on both sides. Um, because people want to turn these things into sort of caricatures. If you watch a lot of the TV coverage of this, it is certainly on, you know, MSNBC, even CNN, you know, but NBC, ABC, CBS, all that kind of stuff. It's all pretty one-sided that there really is no rational position against the idea of letting this woman with uh, a, a baby She's pregnant. She has two kids already. She wants to have more kids. The baby, I guess, had, I think she's had the abortion already. Trisomy 19, which is a pretty terrible, debilitating thing. 90% of kids don't, babies born with it, don't live very long. Although 10% can live more productive, longer lives. I'm more with Sarah on this than I am with John in the sense that I, it sounds, I'm, I'm persuaded that the, the Texas law was written poorly. I'm persuaded that the decision to have the abortion for medical reasons was persuasive to me. Where I think people give short shrift to the other side. And, and again, go listen to John talk about it. And he had a piece on, on Dispatch where he talked about it, which got a gazillion comments. But like if you, if you listen to sincere pro-lifers, uh, not just John, other people, you know, uh, some of my friends at National Review, part of the point is, is that abortion at that stage is kind of a, a barbaric act, that it's more humane to have the kid born, and if they're going to die, die with hospice, palliative care, whatever, than to be dismembered in utero, which is a phrase I've heard from a few people. And I get that argument. I think it's a morally consistent, understandable argument. There are a lot of people who look at the evidence and believe with some serious justification that fetal pain is a real thing and, and that life is precious and that you should, you know, uh, respect life all the way through. I think it's a principled argument. I get it and all that. I just think that even if that position is mostly or close to entirely right, you're still left with the bigger picture, right? It's very much like the Colorado thing. The In the bigger picture, if you're pro-life or if you want to move the country in a more pro-life direction, 
these are not the cases you want to be arguing about. Because the idea that Ken Paxton or a bunch of judges can override the desires of the mother and of the doctor with the facts as we have them now in this case is just going to further erode support for your larger goals. And that's sort of how I see it. And, and it's funny, for years I've always had this, and I've written about it a bunch of times, I've talked about it on here a bunch of times, it, it's always bothered a lot of people. I've never liked the binary pro-life, pro-choice thing. That's why I've always said I'm essentially pro-life or I'm mostly pro-life. And there are a bunch of different arguments I've made over the years for it. And I got a lot of grief for it from people, you know, because one thing that pro-lifers and pro-choicers who are really passionate and committed, never mind professionally engaged with the issue, one of the, thing, one of the few things that they agree on is that it's a binary choice. You are either pro-life or you are pro-choice. And part of my argument, part of the argument for a lot of people about why overturning Roe was a, I mean, why, not overturn, why, why, why the Roe ruling 50 years ago was bad is that it, it denied the fact that most people were closer to the middle on the issue. That pre, whenever pro-lifers are talking about or we're talking about late-term abortions, partial, ter, partial birth abortions, all that kind of stuff, they were winning. Because there are an enormous number of people who are, when push comes to shove, pro-choice, who are nonetheless horrified by that stuff. And when pro-choices were talking about morning-after pills and abortions in the first, you know, 10 days or whatever, or two weeks or whatever, they tended to win. And certainly pro-choice people win whenever they're talking about rape, incest, life of the mother for good reasons, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize either side on this because I actually have a, a deep and abiding respect. This is one of these points that gets so lost is that pro-life people and pro-choice people are so often talking past each other. Both positions are about defending rights. The pro-choice position sees the mother, the woman, and it is always women, as fully autonomous until the baby is delivered, right? But sometimes you can see where the lo logic of that sometimes takes people where you had like Barbara Boxer saying, um, life begins when you bring the baby home from the hospital, which I'm sure she regretted saying, but it was incredibly stupid and grotesque at the same time. You know, and this is, this is what Roe messed up, is that Roe, the country was coming to a more... Well, I would say you got European compromise on this stuff where, you know, in Europe, depending on where you're talking about, but in much of Europe, first trimester is pretty unregulated in terms of abortion. Second trimester is pretty regulated and third trimester is really damn hard and you need a really good reason. And again, I don't like abortion. I don't, I don't like anything about it. And one of my arguments was always that I can engage my moral sense and my outrage and my horror about partial birth abortion, you know, late-term abortion, far more easily than I can about blastocysts, right? And friends of mine like Ramesh Panuru wrote a brilliant book called The Party of Death. They make a very rational, coherent, persuasive argument on intellectual grounds that, you know, 
it's a human being all the way through and that the state should not be in the business of saying people get to kill some human beings, but not others. I'm very intellectually sympathetic to that. But I was always more of an anti-Roe guy than a pro-life guy about the actual politics of this stuff. And for me, I would like to move the country in a more pro-life direction. I'm, I'm essentially pro-life. But the theological arguments have not always been very powerful for me. Um, the scientific arguments against abortion are actually more powerful for me. The political philosophy arguments about how the state should not be in the business of deciding who is what human beings count as human beings is very persuasive to me. It doesn't change the fact that, that women have a very legitimate argument about how their rights are such that they should be making these decisions. And pro-lifers have a very good argument about the rights of the unborn. And there's always going to be tension there. It's always been my view that like Roe should go because Roe is terrible law, is essentially lawless. But after that, you got to get busy with persuading people. You got to make arguments, right? You got you to gotta work hard at this. And these kinds of cases, particularly when people like when the Texas legislature and, the, and people like Ken Paxton aren't doing the, their serious homework about this stuff and how they write these things and how they think through these things, you're just going to make more people pro-choice and hostile to pro-life arguments. And so uh, if you can't have your way overnight and you still believe in democracy and making arguments and stuff, you got to pick better fights. And I just think politically this is just a bad fight uh, for the pro-life cause. Oh, I'm supposed to tell you guys, they asked me over at AI to talk to you about um, AI's summer honors program, which I, I will just say it flat out is great. I've known a lot of kids who've taken it. I've talked to these kids. Uh, I've talked to the classes. I usually do some sort of event at the end of it. Um, the people who actually teach the various courses take it very seriously. Obviously, you guys know I love AEI. And so uh, let me just read this. This is just basically the language that they sent over, and I'll, I'll stop ad limbing. I want to take a moment to tell you about AEI's 2024 Summer Honors Program taking place in Washington, D.C. this June. The annual program is an all-expenses-paid experience for undergraduate students. Sorry, you know, empty nesters. Undergraduate students to come to D.C. from universities across the nation and the world for a week in June where they'll learn from top policy experts and guest speakers. Some of the courses we're offering this year will cover technologies challenge to democracy taught by Christine Rosen, who, you know, I love the relationship between freedom, progress, and tradition taught by Yuval Levin, one of Canada's foremost uh, porn stars, and polarization and pluralism taught by Dispatch senior editor turned New York Times columnist David French, who of course is dead to me. In addition to their seminars, students will also have the opportunity to connect and network with other students, young professionals, and experts from across the political spectrum and public policy world. All participants will receive meals, lodging, and a $250 stipend. If you're a current college student or you know someone who is and may be interested, head on over to AEI.org or Google AEI Summer Honors to learn more. Applications are due March 1, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I recorded yesterday a podcast with, uh, I think I can call him my friend. Paul Bloom. I was pretty sycophantic in my praise of Paul Bloom because it's sincerely held. He's, um, I, I love his books. Very smart guy, very menschy, sweet guy. And one of the foremost academic psychologists in the world. And I, I cajoled him into coming back on the remnant because his book is out in paperback. It's a I, I think it was a great conversation. Um, and time just goes by when I'm talking to him. One of the things we talked about was the Sapir Whorf hypothesis. It's extremely controversial in various circles. I think it's sort of fascinating thing. It's, it's an idea that people still actively subscribe to in academia. If you're interested, you should probably Google it. Um, again, it's a little bit of a spoiler because we do talk about this on the Paul Bloom thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll deviate in a second. Um, the severe wharf hypothesis is basically that languages, they, they, they shape the way you think. And so therefore different languages can literally change the architecture of people's brains so that in different places where they speak different languages, people reason differently right and as i pointed out to paul which he agreed with immediately um if you've ever seen the movie arrival where um the main character is like a this linguist and she's gotta figure out what the alien's language is who visited all over the globe and as she figures out as she deciphers and translates their language the process of doing that transforms the architecture of her brain to the point where she can like essentially mentally project through time. Um, and he was like, yeah, that is one of the greatest examples of wharfism or superior wharfism in all of popular culture. Anyway, he says there's, it's basically not true, right? There's, 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 there's granular, tiny little bits of evidence for real, but pretty trivial differences in reasoning based on people who speak different languages and stuff, but it's not a really a thing. I've been interested in this stuff for a long time, not on the psychology side, but on the sort of intellectual history side for a long time, because obviously this was once not necessarily grounded in linguistics, but the idea that different societies, different people reasoned differently, right? That their brains actually processed information differently is very, very old, right? I mean, it's like those people behave, do this because they're 
less evolved or more savage or they're a different species or whatever. Um, these ideas, you know, they go all the way back to probably, you know, when, when Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon were, you know, we were all fighting each other, um, when there was probably a lot more truth to it. So something we didn't get into is uh, Ludwig, von, Ludwig von Mises, for those of you who don't know, is sort of one of the founding fathers of the Austrian school of economics. There's a whole thing about von Miesians in America that is too deep a rabbit hole to go down. But um, von Miesens, I don't know if he coined it or just popularized it. I think he might have coined it. He came up with this term called polylogism. Um, poly meaning many, logism as in logic, logos, thinking. His objection was that the Marxists and biological racists and, and, and other people, they subscribed to notions of polylogism, which was basically that different classes, not necessarily different nationalities, though that was part of it for some people, different classes of people, the proletariat, the ruling class. For biological races, racists, the Jews, they just simply thought differently, right? That they, you know, there was a lot of stuff. I've written about this a bunch. You know, Nazis had all sorts of notions about Jewish logic and Jewish reasoning as, as if like, you know, Jewish think math was somehow qualitatively different. And if I, if I remember correctly, von Mises gets into the polylogism stuff because his complaint against the Marxists was that what they basically did was they, they hid the ball. They basically argued that they couldn't come up with coherent arguments against free market economics. And so they just basically said, yeah, you just don't get it because we think like the proletariat or we think, you know, whatever. And it was a way of basically saying this disagreement is essentially existential, congenital, baked in, and this divide cannot be crossed, which is another way of saying I can't win the debate, so I'm going to claim you speak a different language than me and you just think differently, and so therefore it's your fault. You can't see the rightness of my position, which is another way of saying power should win, right? That, that basically our differences are irreconcilable. We don't need to have a conversation because conversation is pointless because you're from Venus and I'm from Mars, and so therefore... Uh, the ultimate arbiter of metaphysical truth will be whoever wins the fights in the streets. I don't know if von Mises went that far, but um, that's sort of my view on it. This is one of my problems with philosophical pragmatism, which I know I talk about way too much. It seems to me like, A, von Mises had a really good point. I should also just, since I'm here, and if you're here, I should at least, um, was one of these ideas, let me back up. Let me just do this a completely different way. Um, and just think it through out loud for a second. So last week I got into an uh, interesting exchange with one of the listeners for the solo remnant, sorry, the ruminant, about my case that Darwinian thinking was a big contributor to the rise of the biological racism of the Nazis. The reader clearly knows his stuff and made some very good points, and I'm not, I still think I'm right, but... Um, I'm probably less right than I certainly sounded last week. It, only insofar as, first of all, there are just a lot of variables that led to Nazism. I wasn't trying to say first there's Darwin, then you get Nazism, because that's just not true. And I don't think I ever believed it. But if I sounded like I was believing it, I apologize. But I do think, and I still do think, that the 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 
Darwinian stuff helped fuel the rise in biological racism that distinguished Nazism from a lot of other forms of nascent and then fully-fledged authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And the reader, I, I should have gotten his name beforehand, but I didn't realize I was going to be doing this. The reader has a really good litany of how biological racism in one form or another is much older than Darwin and was a live proposition in, in European thinking well before anyone dreamed about the theories of evolution. Point taken, that's all fair. If you read um, Jim Caesar's great book, Reconstructing America, which is where I know a lot of this stuff from, you know, people like Gabineau, these French intellectuals, um, they had all sorts of crazy theories about the, the vapors and the spirit, you know, and the biological things of North America making Americans sort of different and all this kind of stuff. I agree, that's been around for a very long time. But just to, not to rehash all that, um, the point I want to get to is that relativity, which is a really broad philosophical concept um, that has a lot of different forms, was just the bomb in the 19th century. Um, it was everywhere. Um, I remember Richard Ellie, this guy I've spent way too much time writing about and thinking about, who was one of the, who was the founder of the Wisconsin School of Progressivism, hugely important intellectual in the progressive era. I think it was him who was just talking about how everything you read, everything you did in intellectual affairs in the, 19th, in the late 19th century, starting with his studying in Germany, relativism and relativity was everywhere. And what do I mean by relativity? Well, again, remember, this is a half, well, I have to do the math. Maybe it's only 25, 30 years, depending on where you start. But this is before Einstein comes up with a theory of relativity. This was much more of a biological notion that gets into this, like this polylogism stuff. And the historical school, which was um, the term for the historicists of Germany, um, these were the people that this guy Richard Ellie and a lot and John Dewey and Woodrow Wilson and you know all these guys were sort of downstream of this school because this was Johns Hopkins was basically founded as a German university on the German model um, based on this stuff as was in a lot of ways the University of Wisconsin which is why both schools had their great you know uh, Brickskeller pubs or Ratskeller pubs was this notion that different peoples evolve, again, not in a biological way, but in their own way, their own unique way. And so, and language is a huge part of this. This is what the founders of German Romanticism believed, that language was the most important thing, that it shaped people's souls, shaped their minds, shaped their nature. Um, that's why German language was so pure, because it wasn't tainted by the filth of, 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 of Latin Rome. And so language was, was not just, it didn't, didn't just inform culture. It was sort of metaphorically and almost literally a, sort of a die marker for speciation almost. And so the needs of Germans were just going to be different than the needs of Brits. And that's why Manchester liberalism and free markets could work for the British but they couldn't possibly work for a people like the Germans who are much more, you know, connected and, and communal and whatever, right? And heroic. 
And so it was this, you know, this early form of identity politics. And this is why the famous counter-enlightenment guy who I've quoted for years, uh, Count Joseph de Meist, who was um, an ultramontane Catholic intellectual, he has this famous revulsion against the Declaration of Rights of Man. Again, this is, this is a little earlier than the stuff I was just talking about, um, where he says, I've met a Russian man, I've met a French man, I've met an English man, even thanks to, I think it's Montesquieu, I've met a Persian man. I've never met this person called man. And the point being was that there is no such thing as man. There are only different identities, different flavors of, of man, and they cannot be reconciled with each other. That sort of thinking, which was the dawn of identity politics and a lot of modern identity politics, was given full flower in Germany, where we get the word empathy from, which is this idea that you couldn't really understand or make any judgments about a culture unless you kind of like the chicken arrival completely threw yourself into their language and their culture to understand it from the inside and the process of doing that would make you join that culture. And that was the relativity, right? It was that like, there are no universal economic laws. Supply and demand may work here, but not there. Um, all that kind of stuff. And again, the problem with that sort of thinking is it's just a way, I'm not saying that everyone didn't believe it, but it's, it leads you can see how it comes from motivated reasoning because one of the things it does is it, it, it gives you license to just use power as you want, right? That was my problem with pragmatism. That's my problem with a lot of these things is that once you start saying the laws of economics really aren't all that real, you're basically just saying we're going to have some people in charge and they know better and live with it. So anyway, the reason why we call the Austrian school, the Austrian schools, it started as a pejorative. Because the German relativists of the historical school had contempt for people like von Mises and Hayek and the other, you know, Austrian economists, because they actually rejected polylogism, which is why von Mises came up with the term polylogism. They rejected it saying that, no, economics is pretty much a universal thing. The laws of supply and demand, the laws of, you know, prices and whatever, you know, economic stuff, they don't really change from country to country. Politics can distort these things, which I think every Austrian would agree with. And that's one of the reasons why the Austrian, you know, economists uh, don't like the corrupting influence of politicians meddling with the market. And so the Austrian school, basically, the term was founded as a pejorative, as an insult to describe, look at those idiots who believe in universal human values or universal laws, at least when it comes to economics. And so... It's, I just think it's, it's, it's like kind of like neocon, right? Neocon gets coined as an insult. And then some people say, all right, I'll take that insult. And they start calling themselves the same thing. So, I mean, just to bring it forward to today, this is, this is again, why I never think, I, I always say there, there, there are no new arguments out there. They're just new contexts for old arguments. Maybe AI will change that, right? Maybe just the nature of AI or CRISPR technology, right? There's some, there's some technologies that really do require new arguments at, at least at the edge case or, or something like that. But, you know, even then often not, right? I, I do think that social media is one of these things that is pushing us towards some newish arguments, but we can have that, we can have that conversation another day. 
the reason I got into all that was that the Darwinian stuff, there's certain, it's, it's weird. This happens a lot in history where people have ideas and then there's some scientific finding that lets them claim, okay, these are actual universal laws of the universe. And Paul Johnson actually begins Modern Times, which is a fantastic book, with how the theory of relativity kind of, when Einstein's experiments with, you know, light bending around the sun, showing that light bent to gravity, that proved relativity, this was like, oh my gosh, all this stuff we've been saying for the last 50 years about relativism, we now have, we have astrophysical proof that the laws of the universe are relative. And Darwinism had a similar effect. I, I take, the, again, I apologize for not remembering his name. I take his points entirely that there's a long antecedent, you know, there's a long tail to this stuff. Again, I'm, I'm the guy who says there's there are very few new ideas. Um, but Darwinism seemed to confirm this idea of relativism, not just as a cultural thing, but as a biological thing. It was now something that even the sort of secular lab coat wearing people who look down their noses at the more flowery versions of, of race theory were now like, huh, we got Darwinism now. So like this gives us license to, you know, put some terrible ideas into practice. Anyway, that's why I got into that. Moving up to present day, DEI is very much like, it's very much a poly logos kind of argument. It's very much like philosophical pragmatism. It's very much like the relativism of the, of the 19th century and early 20th. Insofar as it's such a, it's, it's, you know, go back in my underrated second book, um, read the stuff about social justice, right? This, this, this tactic comes up all the time in human history. Come up with some highfalutin capital letters um, concept, social justice, right? And then you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and s convince everybody to bow and scrape at the altar of this idea because who could be against social justice? Who could be against diversity, equity, and inclusion? And then basically say, okay, this holy of holies, this irrefutable good thing we're going to appoint some experts and they get to decide how these concepts are applied in the real world. They get to make choices about resources, about hiring, about admissions, because they are the ones committed to these good things. And so if you're against the way they do these things, you're against the good thing itself. One of the oldest forms of argumentation Done, it's been done by Christians, it's been done by Jews, it's done by, you know, uh, James Harrington, he called, he dubbed this priestcraft. Priests take the power as the, it was also part of Rousseau's, you know, indictment of the Enlightenment, but it's, this takes, the priests, or it's not a theological point, it's like a public choice theory point. The priests take control, have the authority to be the unindictable interpreters, the good thing of Christian dogma or whatever. And they use that authority to be self-serving. The DEI people and before that social justice people, and we could probably come up if we sat here for long enough, a dozen different terms that have been used this way. Climate change, they do this all the time where 
climate change is bad or the environment is good. So therefore the environmentalists have to be right about everything. Therefore the, the anti-climate change people have to be right about it. And if you question them, you're questioning the, the, the abstract commitment behind them. When in fact, a lot of grifters and jackasses have gotten incredibly rich claiming that they were fighting climate change when they were just self-dealing. Right. That's what priestcraft is, is where you use people's commitment to some greater good as a way to improve your own status and power or wealth. Right. That's priestcraft. DEI works this way where you get these people get just get to claim that they're on the side of goodness because they are committed to diversity, equity, inclusion. And if you disagree with their actual decisions or how they enforce this stuff, then you're against these things. When in reality, it's, it's just coming up with a non-falsifiable, incoherent concept that, look, I mean, when, when, when laws are really, really ambiguous, the people who given the power to, dis, to settle the ambiguity or to exploit the ambiguity benefit, right? That's why you want simple rules for a complex society. Because any ambiguity, any complex, you know, I mean, it's, it's been on the bingo card since the very beginning. Complexity is a subsidy. Remember that? There's that great scene in The Wire where, what's his name? Uh, Chief Burrell, who's like a hack, bad cop. But he's really, he explains sort of late in the season, our series, that he's really, that he's, he's not good at tactics. He's not good at strategy. He's not really good at being a policeman. But what he's really good at is helping politicians. And this pol the mayor needs to fire some cop and he can't fire him on the merits because that would piss off all the rank and file. Burrell comes in with a giant binder about the rules and procedures for cops. And he says, look, I'm good at helping politicians. I can get rid of any cop imaginable with something in this binder. So if that's what you want me to do and take the heat off of you, that's what I'll do. That's the problem with ambiguous, excessive regulation, excessive law, is that you just give people in power something to hang the exercise, their exercise of arbitrary power on that legitimizes it. I've written a bunch about how my first choice is not a strictly pure, hyper-libertarian free speech regime on college campuses, but I would happily settle for it, right? That is a that is the compromise. That is the compromise that, and I talk about this a bunch with, with Paul Bloom, um, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but the idea that DEI isn't a, essentially just a license to do social engineering the DEI people like and speech policing the DEI people like is just ludicrous to me. It's obviously false, right? And we've talked about this enough times that I don't need to run through all the examples of like the kind of speech that is immediately cracked down upon when it runs against the grain of the progressive DEI crowd um, versus the kind of speech that's tolerated in since October 7th, anti-Semitic speech, because it doesn't run against the grain of those people. You know, the double standard is enormous. And as you look around, though, I mean, it's just, again, I mean, there's a big point of suicide of the West about how much of this stuff is not new. These are old arguments grounded in human nature that we put new eggheady baubles on and say, oh, or new eggheady costumes on and say, oh, look, here's this new idea. There are a bunch of progressives who are very, 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 very angry that anyone would dare say that Claudine Gay benefited from, was a diversity hire, right? 
benefited from affirmative action or whatever the correct term is now. I, I guess I talked a little bit about this on the Dispatch podcast, but like, I totally get why people would be insulted to say that they were picked as a diversity hire. But the hypocrisy of the people who say that we need to set up the entire system to promote diversity hires and then get outraged when you actually say any individual person was given, you know, extra points for being black or female or gay or whatever is just bizarre and ludicrous. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that these institutions need to bend rules, bend standards, all that kind of stuff all the time as a systemically in order to fight systemic racism or whatever, and then say, but you cannot say that any individual student or faculty member or heaven forbid, college president, university president benefited from that kind of systemic change. It's one of these things that sort of hidden in it illuminates the basic problem with this approach to things. If you take offense at the charge that you were a diversity hire, or that someone you admire was a diversity hire. And I, when I say diversity hire, I do not mean in any way that all diversity hires do not have any qualifications for the job. You know, as someone who's had to think about hiring a lot lately, it turns out that, it, you know, at, at the margins, deciding what counts purely as merit and what doesn't gets difficult at, at the, at the, on the edge, right? But... I don't think it's ludicrous. I mean, let's just pretend for a second that Claudine Gay didn't plagiarize and that her work deserved the awards it got. Obvious to me that she'd be competitive for that job, but is it really so outrageous to say, going by the standards and the, the stated principles and values of the, the DEI crowd, that if it was a tie between Claudine Gay and some white waspy male that the school could make a, a defensible case by picking the first female black president of, of Harvard. Like I know friends on the right who would say, yes, that's a bad criteria and should be totally colorblind. And I have some sympathies for that view, although I, I'm not a hundred percent on board with that either. You know, I will just, for example, I've been having this argument for years. It's like, I definitely think being black or Hispanic is a plus for police officers in black or Hispanic neighborhoods. It doesn't mean that you should hire unqualified black or Hispanic cops, but like all other things being equal and you only can hire one more cop and you need more police in a black neighborhood, it makes sense to me to say maybe we should hire the black guy, right? That, it's, that does not smack to me of abandoning liberal principles or liberal values, but they can't be like, systemic rules or anything it's just gonna it's a judgment call right but anyway so certainly by dei standards certainly by the people who write tens of millions of words about the the vital importance of diversity and and inclusion and equity and blah, blah, all this stuff surely there's nothing wrong with leaning a little bit over to the side of diversity by hiring the first black female president of harvard but then when people say that played a role, how dare you? How dare you suggest she was hired for anything other than merit? Well, wait a second. Aren't there like 10 million 
academic papers and op-eds talking about how meritocracy is, 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 is a poisonous white supremacist concept, but you're going to invoke merit and meritocracy to defend a diversity hire, right? I mean, it's just, it's one of these things where if, if the forces of DEI had the courage of their convictions, they would admit that what they're doing is substituting their judgment, their aesthetic judgment, their moral judgment for objective, clear, neutral, or fair rules that apply to everybody, um, which is what social justice warriors have always done. It's what the pragmatists did. It's what the progressives did. It's what the historicists did. You go down a very long list of claiming to be for some abstract concept when in reality you're for a relativistic set of values that reward your tribe, your team, your faction. For my friends, anything. For my enemies, the law, right? Claudine Gay and her defenders, they want to invoke the abstract liberal rules to defend um, their bad decisions about, you know, anti-Semitic speech or plagiarism or whatever. But when it comes to how they want to run these institutions, uh, they're not consulting sort of Humean free speech principles when no one's looking. They're not saying, hey, not calling David French and saying, how would you set up, you know, our speech policies on campus? Um, they only want to invoke the sort of David Frenchian view of free speech when being criticized from the outside. Because we all know that if a bunch of kids were going around shouting, you know, clan slogans, they would have been shut down instantaneously. There wouldn't be context. It wouldn't be something where you have to hear both sides. And similarly, like now we're seeing it, which is just sort of amazing to me, plagiarism stuff, right? Where plagiarism is one of these like no screwing around rules that like, I, I don't know if she'll survive. So like maybe by the time you listen to this, she finally resigned, which she should do read John McWhorter on this. Right. But like this, I, it, it reminds me a little bit about, you know, Trump and Clinton with the, the classified material stuff. They're so important that they get to break the rules, but the little guys, you know, who, you know, take a selfie in front of the engine of a sub, you know, they get five years in prison, but, um, and, and their career is ruined, but the big important people, you know, Sandy Berger can shove stuff down his pants, who cares? But the little people, you know, they have to be kept in line. That's basically Harvard's position on this plagiarism stuff. Cause she's clearly guilty of plagiarism, but because the wrong people were the ones to point it out, they're calling it duplicative language instead of, you know, plagiarism. It's it just, it's, our rules for the stuff that we care about, your rules when we have to defend our dirty laundry from time to time. I just find it all like incredibly maddeningly grotesque and, and frustrating. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Sarah had this interesting idea on the Dispatch podcast about um, expressing gratitude for 
not for like the big people. I mean, you should, you guys know my position on gratitude, but um, her idea was like expressing gratitude for little kindnesses, little things that help you in your life from people who may not even have known that they were helping you. And uh, she sprung this on me and Steve right before taping. She said we couldn't do for, for reasons of her criteria, we couldn't do parents or coaches or bosses or anything like that. She then said on the podcast, you also can't do teachers, um, which screwed Steve, but he went with some teachers anyway. I went with someone who doesn't quite completely fill the criteria because she's still a friend and she's family to me. But um, uh, this woman uh, who worked with my mom when my mom worked out of the house as a literary agent, she was sort of my kind of big sister in um, my high school years. Just deeply grateful to her. She helped me figure out how to talk to women in a grown-up, mature, fun way and, and helped me think through all sorts of things in life and it had a big impact on me. And I didn't really realize it until I was in my 20s and I remember sending her a note just saying, hey, just so you know, you played a big part in my life and meant a big deal to her. But I've been thinking about like more about what Sarah's um, who would f better fit Sarah's actual criteria? Because I think it's a good idea. To, to, it's not just good to thank those people if you can, um, but it's also good to recognize in yourself that you have reasons to be grateful to people. So I got, I got a lot of gratitude for a lot of different people, but I've been thinking about it a lot in the context of all this. When I was first starting out at National Review Online, you know, um, in the very earliest days of the G file when it was a blog before we had the word blog, I had no idea what I was doing or how long I would be doing it. This wasn't the kind of writing I had planned on ever doing. And it was um, such a weird time and a weird new technology and all this kind of stuff. And I was taking real flyers and which is why I'll always be grateful to Rich and the guys at NR for letting me just indulge myself. Cause I just, once I got in the door, I started doing things that um, I was not, technically really hired to do. And because the internet was sort of the wild west, I could get away with it. And, um, and anyway, at that time I would hear from readers. I would get emails from readers and I still get emails from readers today. I'm still grateful for it, but I have, I have a, I have a good deal more confidence in the, in who I am and what I do than I did back then. And there were just some readers who were clearly serious grown-up people who were like, you're good at this, you should keep doing this, or even by disagreeing with me, but on, on serious terms, right, by taking what I was writing seriously and engaging with it, that it was this huge sort of confidence booster for me. It was like, oh, okay, I deserve to be here kind of thing. And, um, you know, there's this guy, he'd be shocked if he finds out I mentioned him on there, this on here. And I haven't heard from him in years. I see him every now and then on Twitter, this guy, Hiawatha Bray, who's like a science and tech writer in Boston. I think he's at the Boston globe now, at least that's where he was last time I saw his byline. He would push back on stuff I wrote. I don't know if he's a conservative or liberal, doesn't matter. He's smart. And, um, getting email from him, you know, just simply meant that I was worth his time to read, even when he disagreed with me because he was like a s important writer at the time. It just meant a lot to me. And he'll think this is very strange that I brought this up if he hears about this. Another guy 
I don't know what his real name is. I think it was Chuck Clardy who used to email me all the time. And then about a, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago, I recently went and looked and found that he just stopped emailing me. I went to look to, I sent him an email, got no response. I, I, I fear that he's passed away. He was clearly on the older side. I looked for obits, couldn't find it, but he would give me going way back to the early 2000s, all sorts of great philosophical ammo quotes from books. We had this shared belief that corporatism was really the political economic ideology that we were fighting, not socialism, you know, not nationalism, blah, 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 blah. And he would send me excerpts from books and essays to read and, and random quotes that were hugely useful and give me feedback on stuff. And there were a bunch of people like that you know, some I've become friends with in the real world, like my friend Bill Walsh, who was my original, I, can, I think I can out him now, was my original Middle East guy on, um, on the corner, um, who's a brilliant, sort of, he works largely as a translator, among other things, but he's a sort of a brilliant scholar of Turkey and, and Middle East stuff and just knows a lot of things about a lot of things. And anyway... I, I've acquired some people, some who have become friends in the real world, some who have become just sort of e-friends with, and some who I've just completely lost touch with. But I'm grateful to a huge number of them. And I'm grateful to you guys. Um, you know, I don't hang out in the comments a lot. I don't really understand the people who just want to talk about how much they can't stand me, but listen to 90 minutes of me rambling alone to a microphone. I just don't understand how I'm worth their time, but Okay. Uh, but I do get a lot out of the feedback I get from you guys, um, also from G-File readers. Supremely grateful to the number of people who came with me when I left NR. Uh, and it's great, like at the dispatch meetup, I, you know, a bunch of people said, hey, I'm so-and-so from, you know, email. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, because some of these people I do consider kind of be to be friends in a weird way, right? Because it's, it's weird to have friends who aren't acquaintances. Usually it works, you know, first you become acquaintances, then it becomes friends. but. I unburden myself a great deal <laughs> um, for my readers and listeners in ways that's pretty personal. This the podcast medium is pretty personal. Um, I come in here, you know, you know, without a safety net and just let her rip. And I think that that's kind of it. I don't want to say it's intimate because I keep the nudity tasteful around here, but um, there's something, you know, there's an intimacy to it that I'm aware of. And when I talk to people, when I see people in person. Um, and we talk about dogs and, you know, kids and all that kind of stuff. It's really gratifying that I have a, that I can tell I have an impact on some people. And, um, and I try really, really hard not to let it go to my head, which is why it's always very difficult for me to actually meet these people in real life. Cause it's so, so weird. And I get through my days by pretending I'm putting a note in a bottle and just throwing it into the sea. But, um, anyway, I'm grateful to you guys probably should have done more of the gratitude stuff around the Thanksgiving episode. Um, but Sarah put this in my head and it's better to get it in under the wire before the new year. Thankful to you all. Thank you for your support of the dispatch. If you can become a subscriber or get a gift subscription, that would be wonderful. And um, I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>